it's the whole thing that's going on with all Kim Jong. You know what I mean? Like, busting my ankles. Now I'm not showing up. You know, now I'm good. I'm here. Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Happy Thursday morning. It's actually Thursday morning. Here we are. It's a Tropical MBA podcast today. I'm joined by the boss man on my left and on my right, Jacob Poole, one of our speakers here at DCBKK. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, how's it going, guys? Hey, we also got an audience member. Shout out to Simon Payne. Simon Payne, have you been on this podcast before? I think in spirit at minimum. You know what Simon said to me? He said, can I stay in the room? And I said, of course you can stay in the room. He said, great, that way I don't have to listen to the episode. (laughs) I said, smart. (laughs) All right, today we're going to be talking about productized services. That's what we've asked you to come to the conference to talk about. You've built a really successful productized service business. And this is sort of like a 201 episode. If you've gotten to the point where your services business has taken off, you probably have some sales chops. You probably learned how to go out there and drag it home. What we were finding in the community is capacity issues. You basically build yourself a fire hose and then you gotta drink from it. So I think you have a lot to offer in terms of building a solid operation that then you can just go out and sell into and grow that services business. So could you give us some background on what your business looks like so we can put this conversation into context? Yeah, yeah, we're about four people in the U.S., full-time, myself, my partner, and two others. And we've got a team of about 20, any day, 20 to 25 people around the world are working on our clients for us. And what is the service that you're offering? Who are your clients? Well, as of the past year, we work with dentists exclusively. We have niched. We do SEO, pay-per-click, website development, that kind of stuff. So a common product you might be selling is like a retainer package for internet marketing. Can you give me an idea of like, pitch me on something? I'm, I'm like... Dan MD, what, what, what do I want to... Mr. Dentist, we're going to get your phone to ring through the internet. So we're going to get you to show up, pay-per-click, SEO, we'll build you, build you a great website when a new patient comes on and wants to look for a dentist. The thing that inspired this thinking in you was someone wanted to buy your business at one point. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy experience, actually. It kind of came out of nowhere. Things were going gangbusters with us. And I got a phone call. A, a company was actually looking at us to purchase. Went through the whole process, and they actually gave us an offer. And it turned out that the offer included me. It included a two-year contract with me. So it was a lucrative offer. It was I was happy with the price, but I couldn't quite wrap my head around why I was included in the offer. And so when you came to think about it, and we talked about this before the show, the reason why they wanted you is because you were the process, right? That kind of got you thinking. It's like, well, where did we go wrong here? Like, I've been working on building what I thought was maybe an asset, but I turned out to be the asset. Exactly. I, I basically had built myself a job. It was, it was built to sell in the flesh. We were not built to sell. So it got me back to square one thinking, okay, how do we build this thing where I am not the asset? We actually have assets. They wanted to buy your mojo and you weren't partnering with it. So I was not digging it. Today no. we're going to talk about five ways to turn your services business into a saleable asset. You can find the show notes and all of Jacob's resources on this stuff, everything we mentioned in the episode at tropicalmba.com slash scale. Speaking of scale, when's that going to run out? We're going to run out of URLs. That's what I think is going to happen. This doesn't seem like a very scalable process. All right, so the first step to turning your services business into a scalable asset is mapping the workflow. What do you mean by this, Jake? 
I mean listing out all the tasks that are involved with each product you have. And it'll be kind of telling. It'll actually tell you if you have a productized service or not, because if those tasks change a lot between products, you don't have a productized service. So map out the tasks and then break those tasks up by position. And that helps to plan who do we need, how many people do we need to execute this process. I love that idea. So it's like building this actually teaches you if you have a scalable system, right? So if you're doing a bunch of things that are one-off, right? That's not the kind of business that you're in, right? So you want to take these dentists, you want them to come to you, and then you're going to offer them a package. You don't really do anything special for any of them. You kind of do the same thing, right? Mostly, yeah. We had some spicy items that they think are really different, but it's really easy for us. But for the most part, I want to be able to use a template to launch that client. So it's a Basecamp template. If I can't use that template, then we've deviated from where we need to be as far as a product. Right, because what really creates value for you in these kinds of businesses is scale, right? So it's like, you've got this division, you've got a bunch of people working on it, you need to figure out, okay, how much money can I make with this amount of people and how can I scale that process? How do you deal with your clients when they want customized stuff? Or do you think like dentists are a sweet niche for not wanting, client work is famous for people saying, oh, I want it that way or I want it this way. They absolutely are a good, that's one of the reasons we chose dentists to niche to is because we found ourselves doing the same process over and over and there wasn't a lot of deviation to it. We charge higher prices, so we try to never say no, but knowing that we can't go out of scale. So I would say maybe if we get 20 requests a month that are outside of our process, we'll turn down maybe one. You know, another thing you mentioned in this respect is that you're creating email addresses for positions rather than for individuals on your team. What do you mean by that? Do you have like vacant email addresses out in the ether that people inhabit when they're doing certain tasks or? Once we outline the process, we know who's needed for that process. We create an email address for that position on your org chart. And then when we hire, we're actually trying to make it easy to bring contractors in and out because contractors leave, right? That's what debilitates us in a productized service. Right. So when we have those email addresses, somebody comes in, they just go to ppc at firegang.com with all the passwords and, they, and all of our tasks get sent out to that. And it's a very smooth process. So I want to back up real quick to this org chart idea. So basically you've got an organizational chart and tell me kind of who's sitting on that you've got like a project manager you've got an adwords consultant who, who sits on that an seo person and a video person and a web dev person that's the project manager's team okay so basically you get a bunch of clients in their inbox email fills up right so you say we've got 20 clients now my project manager starting to get overloaded my video guy's starting to get overloaded. So is the significance of this is like the video person is on the Basecamp project. So when you plug a new project in, that email address gets pinged. That email address gets pinged. And that video person may have changed since the last time we needed them. But the new person we hire just checks that email account. And none of these it. people are customer facing. No, no. Okay, and that system would likely have to change if they were. No. So, for example, we're moving our project manager from his name, and you know, he talks to our clients every day, to pm at firegang.com. Interesting. Because when the email shows up, and I realize the objection there is it's not personal, but when the email shows up in our inbox, you actually put your name in and it shows up. Right. Andrews. Right. Right. Okay, that makes Bonehead a lot of sense. Bonehead at tropicalmba.com. <laughs> All right, number two, you're saying define the pod. So <laughs> this is an interesting concept that you brought up where basically you're thinking about your business in pods of revenue coming in at the top end and the amount of contractors or employees it takes to support that revenue related to it. So that little group is a pod. And I thought this was a really interesting concept. Of course, it's going to be different for every services business, depending on how much. But there's a lot of interesting implications in terms of how you think about your business. So can you let me know like how this helps you to visualize? 
Yeah, so we got up to about 40 grand in revenue, and my partner and I were handling monthly. Everything. Monthly, yes. And we brought on a project manager, and we were able to scale our revenue at that point. And I realized that him and I were handling this pod, and that pod was worth X amount of money. And the way that's helpful is knowing what that number is. I know we're approaching pod number two. We need to start looking at pod number two. So I know we need to hire now. Right. So like you're kind of the way you described it was like bursting at the seams. So I know that my pod is capable without cracking at 40 grand. We're at 60 grand now. So what do we do? And so what happens is the way I look at it is when we're stagnant, you know, we got we went stagnant at 40 grand a month. I know that we need to hire somebody because that's the capacity of a pod. I know we need to move on to pod number two. This is empowering because services businesses can be confusing because you're not always having efficiencies of scale. Like your profitability is going to be a little bit wonky because you're going to need you, you mentioned on your team, you know, you have a video guy that serves every pod of clients. Well, when you're only halfway through the revenue, you still need the video person. When you're assuming it's a full-time person, this is the great thing about contractors, right, is you can hire and, and, and not hire according to where you're at in that pod. So you might have one full-time video guy and then half of a contractor and then just scale it up until you get your second pod. Really, the pods for us revolve around the project manager and his team. So this is sort of like Legos, the Legos of your operation and you're stacking them together. That's pretty interesting. So the number three, so you've mapped the workflow, you defined your pod, you use a scorecard system for monitoring your asset. What do you mean by a scorecard system? So each position in that process, when you're divvying up all those tasks, those go to a, to a position in the org chart, right? And each position, it needs to have metrics that drive that position. So creating a scorecard with the metrics for that position enabled you to monitor and drive and make sure you're getting that productivity out of that particular pod. Give me an example of one position, what their scorecard is and how you track it. So for example, our pay-per-click person. Every week he fills out how much, what's his cost per acquisition for phone calls, cost per acquisition for emails that he's getting for our clients. And if that falls or drops, I know that he's not producing. Another example, that's pretty interesting. How do you track the project manager's effectiveness? That is a great question. His main metric is how happy are clients. It's not like a productivity thing. Every week we get on the phone and we say, how happy are all of our clients? And you measure that as well, right? Yeah, we, we create percentages out of it. You talk to your project manager and he's like, I talked to dental Phil last week and he seemed really cool. He seemed pumped. Exactly. That's 85% or whatever. We use green, orange, and red. And so he has to categorize them. And it creates accountability because he better not be wrong. Because if a client cancels and he measured them green, he didn't do a good job. Of, like Bad judge of character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. And so, That's interesting. No, I've never heard of anybody measuring the emotional feelings and place of their client. That's a, that's a really cool metric to keep track of. Yeah, we actually call it a sentiment analysis. So each week we get on the phone and go through his sentiment analysis. Do you feel like, have there been things that you've tracked in the past that have not been particularly useful? Sometimes I've done this and I get a lot of data in every week and I look at it. And honestly, I don't look at it that much. Sometimes, depending on what kind of data is coming in because it's like, I don't think this is helping me. Yeah, number of tasks that he completes isn't really helpful. I mean, at the end of the day, all I care about is how happy our clients are. So however he wants to get there, that's his choice. But I want to talk to him, is client A happy or not happy with how they're doing? Point number four, once you've done all this SOP stuff, you've worked the system, built to sell Kool-Aid, you have to manage 
the emotional machine. This is a concept we've talked a lot about with your business. You know, it's like uh, as much as we want it to be these glass towers of process, these are people that are, that are running the business and there's a hustle behind that and there's uh, real relationships involved. And so how do you manage your emotional machine? Yeah, when you're telling us about ranking your clients, I'm assuming that you're ranking your employees the same, right? That's exactly, these two points go together because the reason we moved to that sentiment analysis is because we were tracking phone calls and results, all these this analytical stuff and finding people were canceling even though we were giving what we thought good results. It actually, all that mattered was how they felt about how we were doing. So, how well do the results generally correlate to the sentiments in your clients? Not as much as we think. So <laughs> it's crazy. We'll be thinking things are going well. This is actually what happened before. This is why I made this change. We thought things were great on paper. Come well, I would imagine out. a lot of dentists get busy and then they're like, well, F this. I used to have a pretty easy they, they job. Got the fire, <laughs> they got the same fire hose problem that you have, right? It's like, oh, I got all these leads coming in. Now I can't do anything about exactly. it. Exactly. And, and it's also the office manager. And so she's telling him or her that it's not going well. This advertising is no good. And so he feels it feels bad. But on our paper, we're showing it's doing well. We added the sentiment to it. Now, this also can be done with people, right? We talk about, we use words like machine and assets and all these real technical terms. But behind that, it's just people. Along with this scorecard, we also add a, a weekly report. And in that weekly report, you know, I have them kind of report their metrics. But the main thing I look at is... How did the week go? How was their assessment of the week? What do they like most and what do they like least? And if they don't fill those things out, I always respond back. Say, hey, I know you don't want to tell me what you like least, but I need something. I need to know how you're feeling. <laughs> interesting. This is an interesting process, and I think you've done a much better job than we have at scaling this and actually turning it into a process. You know, Dana and I do things like you know make sure that we touch base, have lunch, things like that. We were having a conversation earlier today, and I said, well, what happens when you ask people a little bit too much how they feel? You had an interesting response to that. Yeah, it can become that way. You can become a psychologist, you know, and, and giving sessions and whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'd rather be doing that than have somebody quit out of nowhere. I mean, that's one of my biggest fears that, that I try to avoid is people, I, I know, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I thought you were doing well. Come to find out you were feeling crappy this whole time. Two questions. Why do people quit out of nowhere? What causes that to happen? And what have you learned about managing people that might be counterintuitive? Like, how do you manage, how do you create positive sentiments in your staff? I check in with them a lot. When I get up in the morning and I check in with people, it's not like, how did so and such and such go? It's like, a, how is the day going? How are you getting through the day? From my experience, it's because they're not feeling good about what they're doing. They feel like they're no good. I can be type A personality and drive people. And they can put on a face, but they don't feel like they're good at the job. They feel overwhelmed. It's the human stuff of why people quit. Yeah, I like this idea that we're all running businesses, but at the core of these businesses are real people. And, you know, managing those emotions and making sure that we're in touch with our employees and that everybody is feeling good about their job, that is the asset in a lot of cases. Like, you've built these processes, and I think that in the future, when somebody buys your business, they're buying your process and they're buying your customers and things like that. But a lot of times, the employees go with that, too. So you have to make sure that you're managing that asset as well. Absolutely. It's, it's just as important as the analytical and the reporting and the metric side. So number five, invest in capacity. I think investing in a services business is fraught with complications. I mean, first off, it's a lower margin business. Generally, it's not some internet marketing ebook where everything's dropping to the bottom line. So you got a lot of cash at stake. You've got a lot of jobs at stake. So you don't want to overspend and have to come into the office and fire the people that you just hired. And also you have these choppy sales cycles where, you know, a bunch of customers will cancel one month and all of a sudden you're making half the money you did. And finally, you hustled your face off for two years. You ate rice and beans for half a decade. Finally, your business starts to do pretty well. 
and you become the number one line item on that balance sheet. So how do you invest in these service businesses given all the complications? Well, first you have to see it as an investment. An investment means you're giving something up with the hopes that later it will pay returns. And so the way I've kind of formulated it for us is when I see us kind of flatlining, then I know that maybe the solution is I need to take less and invest that back into the company. It's a spiral that some of us fall into. You know, At the end of the month, my partner and I, we basically suck the company dry, right? We have our salary and then we have our payouts. And at the end of the month, we're not necessarily investing that extra money back in the company. We're taking it, investing it in traveling to Thailand and his kids <laughs> and education and stuff. Actually, we could be taking our salary and then take, investing that back into sales. I think the important thing to note here is that you've got a repeatable process and that's why you feel confident about reinvesting in, into the business. A lot of people, they don't have a repeatable process, right? So they just kind of throw the money in there. They're not sure what happens to it. All they know is that their company didn't grow and they didn't have a salary that month. The fact that you're building these repeatable processes, I think, gives you a lot of confidence to reinvest that money. 100%. And another point to that is maybe you reinvest in discovering what that repeatable process is. And that may mean six months of not making that much money. At the end of six months, maybe you discover what that repeatable process is. That's the thing people don't think about is it takes investment to decide and figure out what that repeatable process is. Speaking of investment, I think people have a hard time determining how to invest in services businesses. You have a counterintuitive theory Let's float it. You're saying when revenue flatlines in a services business, that's the area that you want to invest in. Assuming that all my time is being spent with operationals, handling all these client, new clients coming in. Now, if I'm spending all my time on revenue driving tasks and I'm still not getting results, then that's a problem. What we do find, what I'm finding now is when we do flatline is because I'm sucked into the business and I don't have time to work on biz dev. Right, and I think that that's something that we've come into too, Dan. It's like, hey, we gotta get ourselves out of our business working on our business, not in our business. Yeah, speaking of working on the business, we have to run a conference this weekend, so any parting shots that you wanna leave? A lot of our audience are running services businesses. Any lessons you wanna leave the listeners with? In the beginning, I totally understand. You know, I, I reap the rewards of all the hard work, so don't feel bad about that. You know, if you wanna take six months to a year, Ball out of control. You know, <laughs> take a big salary. It. Yeah, take a big salary, whatever. But when you're ready to make that next jump, maybe take a look at investing that extra money. Yeah, I think this, this is a really important point in these kinds of businesses and all these businesses that we run is like short-term gains versus long-term gains. And what you're interested in now, you did the short-term gains thing. When you went to sell your business, all you could sell was yourself, right? So now you're going to build the long-term asset. Exactly. If we could rename this podcast, we call it the Long Ball Show. We'll <laughs> More long ball thinking next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much, Jake Poole. We'll have all of your contact information. You'll be in the comments if anybody has questions about services, business. Thanks to the boss, man. As always, people were missing you, man. People were wondering where you went. <laughs> Someone claimed last week that you might have settled down and got lost in the burbs. It's like uh, <laughs> it's like it's the whole thing that's going on with old Kim Jong. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> busting my ankles. Now I'm not showing up. You know, now I'm good. I'm here. TropicalMBA.com slash scale. We'll be there. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.